Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Let's pray once more. And we'll dive into uh, our text today. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness. Um, One thing we see in Proverbs is the spine which holds all of the world's wisdom, and that is a God who is sovereign. A God who is king, who holds the world together, not merely um, by some natural convenience, but through Jesus Christ himself. So Lord, we thank you for your provision to this church We thank you for the provision of Christ for our lives, redeeming us from sin and restoring us to you. We thank you for wisdom that shapes how we think, act, and respond in every day. Lord, we pray that as we examine our hearts today, we are quick to examine the heart of Christ. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. So you can open your Bible if you haven't to what Marshall already read, which is Proverbs 26. We're going to be in the whole of that chapter today as we're working through Proverbs. And uh, if you are one who uses the internet or social media, you've realized that one thing the internet has brought to the foreground are personality tests. I don't really think I've ever read a historical account of a medieval knight or a blacksmith really wondering which Disney princess or Marvel superhero he is. And yet here we are taking these tests inside the church. There's a whole network of things you could pay for that will assess your spiritual gifts and your love languages. In the business world, we've got things like the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs test. And so in light of that this week, um, I actually took a couple of them, and this might be intriguing to you. Uh, I took the Enneagram, and I am a 631. Don't know what that means. Apparently, I am a a, a loyalist with achiever and reformer traits. On the Myers-Briggs, I'm an architect, INTJ-T. And uh, I don't know if you guys know those things. Maybe you're like, hmm, that's Tyler. Or maybe you're just like me. I'm like, I didn't know I had to take a test on the test. And so I I looked up these summaries of what these things were. And uh, one blurb said this. It said, uncertainty is often the most difficult for sixes, which is me apparently, to understand and describe. They might give up any attempt to verbalize them and instead succumb to worry. Some might call sixes neurotic. The Myers-Briggs assessment added that my type is the most likely personality type to expect the worst. And initially, as I bristled at that, I found out that there were lovely things that it said about my personality, but what I was drawn to was the succumbing neurosis of finding out where I failed. I knew not what it meant, but I felt seen. And as these tests were throwing up all of my personality faults and potentials to blow up and ruin my life, I realized that if I wanted any sort of hope, they came from my wallet. They said, hey, pay $20, and you'll get a test of how to manage your destructive personality. You'll know how to get a job that caters to your neurosis, and we'll take it. You'll be fine from here. And today, we see an entire ecosystem that preys on our desires to know our hearts, to change our weaknesses, to maximize our strengths. And that's why a book like Proverbs is so good for us. Today in Proverbs 26, Solomon is holding up a personality test for our hearts. And broadly speaking, there are three types of personalities 
that we're going to see. One scholar has identified two mirrors in here, and I think there's actually three. He says, in this text, you see the mirror of fools, the mirror of sluggards, and lastly, we're going to see the mirror of meddlers. And hearing that, those words aren't quite as uh, mystic and uh, scandalous as hearing a 631 or INT, INTJ-T. Uh, and we don't want to be categorized as those things. But here's the beauty of the Bible. It is actually more accurate at describing your heart than anything the world gives. Why is that? Because it looks not through the eyes of the world, but through the eyes of the God who created us. And even better than this, the cost to see who you are, both in its strengths and in its weaknesses, is presented a cure without monetary cost. Where the world prays and says, give me more, and maybe you can become a person without disease. The Bible says you are irreparably broken, and yet come to Christ who sees your heart and promises change free of charge in the cross. And that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see this, is that seeing our hearts through God's eyes gives us wisdom to avoid the pits of destruction. There's a constant reprieve in this text. Perhaps you heard it when Marshall read it for us earlier. And that is the reprieve to be wise in our own eyes. Solomon wants us to use our eyes to read this text, to look in the mirror of our lives and see with sobriety what's there. But then he wants to take what you see with your eyes, but to interpret them according to God's eyes. And when we do that, we're going to find both the conviction of what is wrong, but also the hope for what we need in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in order to see ourselves rightly, we're going to look at three personality traits in this text today. We're going to see first the unfit fool. That's going to be in the first part of our text. Then in verses 17 through 21, we're going to see the self-justifying sluggard. And then in verses uh, 22, I think I'm getting this wrong. Uh, we'll get to the verses later. But anyway, the middle section is going to be the self-justifying sluggard, and then the last section is going to be the malicious meddler. But before we get into the personality tests of our heart, it's important to begin, and you'll see this if you look at your text, that Proverbs 26 begins and ends with kind of these bumper plates of truths about God and how he acts in this world. In other words, it tells us of these created norms that already exist in our world, and they exist because the God who created sustains them. You can't escape these. And we see these norms in the first five verses and then the last verse. So this is what it says, beginning in verse 1. Like snow in summer or rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Like a sparrow in its flitting and a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. A whip for a horse, a bridle for a donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So we're not going to linger here because what we see here is actually a lot of things we've already encountered in the book of Proverbs. But to summarize, Solomon makes four affirmations here which are required if we want to see the good news of this text later on. First, he says that fools will not receive honor. It is unfitting for them. We know circumstances in our life where things are unfitting. To wear white to a wedding is culturally unfitting. And here it is unfitting to give a fool honor. If you want a position that is honorable, do not pursue it according to the world's wisdom. You will not get it. 
It is unfitting. Second, those who pursue righteousness, this is what verse 2 is getting at, though cursed by foolish people, will ultimately be delivered. That's what's meant by this illustration of a bird flitting and flying around. It sounds like a Mary Poppins adage here. Is that the wicked people in this world will see righteousness, will see faithfulness, and they will utter hurtful, harmful, deceitful words, hoping to harm those who follow Jesus. And yet, if we are hidden in Christ, if Christ's righteousness is our righteousness, the curse of the wicked man is causeless and it will, or is directed towards someone who is causeless, and it will not land. It has no ground because if Jesus has delivered you, we are delivered from the fear of man. This world will rub up against you in painful ways when you're attempting to follow Jesus, but the hope of the righteous is that we no longer need to fear the curse of fools, for Jesus became the curse for us. Thirdly, we see that the fool and those who pursue evil will themselves be judged. And this is where we see in verse 27, the end of the verse, or at the end of the chapter, says, whoever digs a pit will fall into it. A stone will come back on him who starts rolling it. So why do we need to see our hearts as God sees them? Why are we going to do this work of looking into three distinct mirrors? Because to leave our hearts unaddressed is to face these consequences. Consequences we see as a horse being whipped into submission or a donkey being bridled for control. So a fool will be struck by the Lord's discipline. A man who digs a pit mischievously, hoping that someone else will fall into it, inevitably, he will fall into his own pit. There's this humorous picture of a man, it's almost like a cartoon clip, of a man rolling a stone up a hill, hoping to roll it down on his enemy. And Solomon says, the one who rolls the stone up will have that stone roll back on them. All of your plans will backfire. Those who do wicked will be judged. And fourthly, we see those who are wise will, with God's help, know how to live in the midst of fools. We saw that in verse 4 and 5. There'll be times where we need to know wisdom, how to respond to wicked people. And there are times we need to know wisdom when not to respond to wicked people. But the key is that unlike the fool, the wise man sees his circumstances through the eyes of the Lord, even if it seems conflicted at the time. He knows that God will give what he needs to make the wise decision. And this is a really important foundation before we get into the three hearts presented because it shows that if we want to see things rightly, we need to be willing that God will do all of these things. If we don't believe that God will care for the righteous, if we don't believe that there is no honor in sin, if we don't believe that God will punish the wicked, and if we don't believe that God will give us what we need, then we will inevitably look at our world and look at our hearts and begin to find someone else to translate it for us. But if we believe that God does God things, then we can take the whole of what we experience in life, we can take it to God, and we can see it rightly with his help. And this is what we need to see as we dive into these three mirrors. And we see first the unfit fool. We see this in verses 6 through 12. It says this, Whoever sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. Like a lame man's legs which hang useless is a proverb in the mouth of fools. 
Like one who binds the stone in the sling is one who gives honor to a fool. Like a thorn that goes up into the hand of the drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like an archer who wounds everyone is one who hires a passing fool or a drunkard. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for him than for the fool. So what Solomon does here is he, he gets us. He leads us into a trap and has us. Because he describes here the inability of fools in three ways. In verses 6 and 10, he shows how business or deep relationships with a fool ultimately harms everyone. It's like an archer who shoots and harms everyone, or like a man whose legs are limp. Then in verses 7 and 9, he says that a proverb, that is wisdom in the mouths of fools, are completely useless. They have no effect. They cannot help. And then in the middle, he shows that a fool can't be trusted with honor. To trust a fool with honor is to put a stone in a sling, to use it with some of our own cultural language. It is to put a bullet in the gun that will harm you. To partner with a fool, to listen to a fool, and to honor a fool is to be silly. Those fools will ruin all of those things. Like a dog who returns to his vomit is a fool who thinks that he is honorable, helpful, and trustworthy. But then we see this verse in Proverbs 26, verse 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. So after spending all this time convincing us that the fool is just the worst... Solomon says, don't be worse than the fool. Who is the one who's worse than the fool? It's the one who trusts in his own eyes, who is wise in his own eyes. Who is the man who's wise in his own eyes? He's the one who looks at all these warnings of these relationships with fools. And he thinks he can go on partnering with them, learning from them and honoring them and be fine because of it. Solomon knows we have a tendency in our hearts to think that we are ultra special. (laughs) That this counsel applies generally to those who are weak, those who need uh, help in life, those who don't have the moral stamina of me. But he knows that we will look at all of these warnings towards relating with the fool and we will think it'll be different for me. I can find the usefulness of a fool. I can learn from a fool. I can honor a fool and be safe. But he says, just as a fool slurps up his own vomit, so you are worse than that to think you're smarter than the Lord. Biblically speaking, the fool is not one who's dumb or lacks intellect. The fool is one who refuses to see things from God's perspective. He's the one who sees uh, or looks at something in life and thinks that he can do what God calls sin to gain what he thinks is satisfaction. He sees reality through a completely different lens than the person who is relying on God. And behind each of these warnings is actually a posture of trust, right? Don't trust a fool in a business sense because he's not going to get you what you need. You think sometimes, we looked at this when partnering with an angry man, we often partner with an angry man because we love the utility of their anger. If he goes and yells at somebody to make sure they pay on time, we're glad we're not the ones who had to yell, but we're certainly glad we got paid on time. 
we see in here that we ought not trust a fool to bring us counsel which heals. We're so prone to looking at the voices of our world and thinking that the Proverbs of the day are really the Proverbs that our souls need. And we see a trust that to give uh, our honor to a fool means that we will get rewarded with the comfort, the satisfaction, or the praise that we ultimately invest our honor towards. And so when you think of who has the positions of counsel, honor, and influence in your life, who are these people? And where do their eyes stand in relationship to the eyes of the Lord? You see, behind the Hebrew word for honor is actually this reality of, of weightiness. Who has this weight in your life? What has this weight in your life? Who are the influencers on social media, the scholars on your shelf, or the commentators on your news outlets? And how much do they lean on you? How much do they begin to warp your frame under the load of their influence? And how easy is it if we are unaware of the different perspectives between these two people to slowly take what they say as seemingly harmless, but we begin to take it as counsel for our lives. We slowly begin to see the world not through God's eyes, but through the eyes of those who cannot see God. And we see behind this text the inevitable reality of discipleship. Discipleship means following someone. It is not a distinctly Christian term, though that's where we often use it. Everyone follows someone. Everyone is learning from someone. Everyone is influenced by someone. Everyone is listening to the Proverbs of someone. Everyone views someone else as helpful. Who is it that you are following? God made us this way. And this reality shapes the kind of community we want the church to be. We want to be those who can be trusted in this area. If we're not willing to let fools bear our message, then we need to be willing to bear the message of wisdom boldly. If we don't want our world to wait for the next proverb tweeted out by some superstar of the day, then we need to show them the God who is worthy to be followed, the God who is radiant in all of his glory, the God who is above all of the attractiveness of the celebrity culture that we prioritize in our world. If we want people to not be let down by the objects that in which they put their hope, we need to point them to a king who is truly glorious and will not lead his people astray. You see, what we see in this text is when we play by world, the world's wisdom, we often see the fool who refuses to see God as the one who is most useful, most wise, and most honorable. And not wanting to be useless, foolish, or dishonorable, we go to listen to them for fear of what they might say of us. But the wise man trusts what God says, not what the world says. That's not to say we'll never find the voices of the world to be helpful, wise, and honorable, honorable but it means that everything we encounter, all of the relationships we have, we view them through the eyes of the Lord. We understand the perspectives and the worldviews and the hidden backdrop behind the content we pursue because we want to be wise according to God's wisdom. Secondly, our next personality type is more directed at our actions 
And this is where we see the self-justifying sluggard. Read with me Proverbs 26, verses 13 through 16. The sluggard says, There's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, and it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. I love, this is one of my favorite word pictures in all of Proverbs because it's a picture you can hear, right? As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. And then even more than that, there's this less flattering description of the sluggard reaching his hand into his chip bag and finding himself too exhausted to even bring it back to his mouth. But what's interesting is when we look at this text, what's actually on display, contrary to what we might think, is the work of the sluggard. He's doing a lot of work. Namely, he's justifying himself. He does this first in order to justify why he's staying inside. He does the hard work of thinking up this narrative. There's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the street. And if there's a lion in the street, then only a fool would go outside. I'm not lazy. I am wise. I am smart. I am doing the right thing. I'm often this way when it comes to running. If I look in the sky and there's a cloud, I know that rain comes from clouds. And if it rains, and if it gets cold and icy, I will slip and fall. Whether it's August or November, those are words I live by. I justify at the easiest thing my what would I be justifying? My fear of running and pain and puking and all those things that generally accompany that when I do it. We do this all the time. We justify. We do the work of inventing narratives to make us feel better about ways in which we are slothful or lazy. We aren't lazy. We're just learning a new skill on YouTube. We're picking up a hobby. We aren't a glutton to Netflix. We just want to be culturally informed. What are our neighbors and our coworkers watching? We're not a slave to our news cycle. We just want to be informed citizens. But the point is that behind this self-justification is an inability to participate in something truly worthwhile, something that actually matters. Now, we often think of the sluggard as the person who does nothing, and that's true. But what's interesting to see is the sluggard is really active in this text. He's constantly turning, but like a door, he's going nowhere and accomplishing nothing. He's burying his hand in the dish. He's not setting it on the dish. He is doing this work that that Solomon wants us to know, like he is getting in there. (laughs) And yet, despite all that effort, He's not even able to feed himself. All this turning, all this bearing, and yet there's no gain. Many of us feel safe from sloth because we're active with our lives, but look at how Paul warns us of this in 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 11 through 12. For we hear some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. 
So Paul warns not only of those who are inactive, but he warns of those whose lives are a flurry of activity towards things that don't eventually matter and never actually fulfill. You see, everyone is busy. I have this terrible tendency when people ask me how I am or how my week was, my default is to say what? Is busy. (laughs) I think in one sense, we justify ourselves with busyness. We fear being worthless. And so if we are busy, it means we add value to our lives. And yet everybody we talk to is busy. Busy with something. We live in a world where the distractions and the anxieties of the day constantly make us busy constantly cause us to fill our schedules and our calendars. But the question is, while everyone is turning and everyone is bearing, is anyone actually getting what they want? You see, the Bible wants us to be a people who rest well and are satisfied. That desire is not from the world, but from the Lord who himself on the seventh day said, everything is good. But is the pace of our search for goodness getting us there? The Bible wants us to enjoy God's creation. But while we spend our days in comfortable leisure, are we led to appreciate the creator or do we end up staring at our own pleasures and palates? He made us for things, to labor for things which matter. And when it comes to the sluggard check, many of us check our couches, but few of us check our calendars but it's just as easy to fill our days with things that don't matter as it is to sit on your couch and be the sluggard too lazy to bring anything to his mouth. Look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You could turn over to Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. Are we using our time well? Solomon knows that 98% of us are going to say, yes, I've assessed, I've looked, and I'm doing well. And he knows this because look at where he goes at the end in verse 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men. And again, we're going to see seven show up uh, later on in this chapter as well. And that seven is this number that represents a wholeness, a fulfillment. Then a bunch of men, competent counselors, who suggest a sensible answer. What's the point of application here? It means that you and me need to be talking to those who see our lives and we need to ask questions we're uncomfortable with. Say, I want you to look at my life, my hobbies, and my habits. Am I living for something that matters? Am I busy with work that honors God Be humble enough to soberly see if behind your frantic pace in life is actually the heart of a sluggard, always turning but never getting what they want. But instead realize that God has called us to great things. Ephesians 2 said that part of our redemption 
is that we would do good deeds which God prepared for us beforehand, that we should walk in them. God calls us to do hard things, satisfying things, difficult things, but deeply meaningful things, things worth living for. How does our heart respond when faced with the temptations of the sluggard? But now Solomon really hits the gas, and we turn into our final point this morning, which is the menacing meddler. We'll meet the meddler in just one moment in verse 17, and behind that word is the reality of an instigator or a provoker. If you've ever done it yourself or made with your kids those homemade volcanoes, the meddler is the vinegar that goes into the baking soda. It's what causes the whole thing to blow up. Everything begins to get agitated. It begins foaming over at the mouth. And there's two ways in this text that you can cause a reaction like this. One is the more visibly offensive quarreler, and the other is the more subtle and secret whisperer. We meet the quarreler in verses 17 through 21. Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. So who is this meddling quarreler that we see here? He's the one who openly delights in instigating fights and conflicts in business which he has no business being a part of. And to to stress this point, he uses this proverb of a man who grabs a passing dog by the ears. And the point is this poor dog has nothing to do with this man. He is doing his dog thing, walking to his dog place. And what does the quarreler do? He grabs the dog by the ears. He involves himself in the lives of someone who he has no busy business involving himself in. And behind the parable is the assumption that this man is himself going to get bit. That he is involving himself in this way where despite all the risk, he would rather rile up this creature which was minding its own business than he would to just sit in comfort. The quarreler is generally the one who loves to watch the world burn and to enjoy it while he's in the midst of the chaos. He's the person who, when he walks into a room, lights it on fire with controversy because he loves it. He is the person who comes to church after the cats beat the grizz in all of his cat gear just to bug us. And more times than we think, we are the quarreler. The internet has exposed our hearts in ways unparalleled to this desire. But the heart we show in our comments, our posts, and on our message boards is the same heart, the exact same heart that sits at the dinner table in your community group and parents your children. If you look at your actions online and you see yourself as a person who constantly wants to poke and to agitate, the internet does not make you that. The internet exposes what's already there. I think this is something that is particularly common among men. I think Paul knew this in Colossians 3.21 where he encouraged fathers not to provoke their children. 
Because I think there's something in a man who likes to challenge himself, likes to see how he measures up, and when that's not directed with the Lord's wisdom, it's directed towards foolishness. We clamor for conflict. We like to provoke things. And I see this, I see my own sins actually in the sins of my son. He loves to irritate his three younger sisters just for the fun of it. And like a man who grabs a dog by the ears, he comes out clawed to death. But he's learned nothing. He sees it as not a weighty enough deterrent to keep him from doing it again. And yet as frustrated as I get with him, as I sit there and I begin to explain to him what's going on in his heart, I begin to see how I'm describing myself and the countless ways I do that with my wife, my friends, with my kids. And I think we're all prone to this in different ways and one common cover for a quarrelsome heart is humor. And this is what Solomon alludes to when he points to the man who set out to deceive his neighbor and ended up saying after all the harm was done, he's like, I'm only joking. Lighten up, geez. Stop taking the world so seriously. Guy can't even take a joke. The quarreler seems to be the most lighthearted in the group. But what he brandishes are fire arrows and death. Did you see that? Look back at verse 26, verses 18 and 19. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and in case you didn't get the point, here it is plainly, death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. You see, I used to follow, uh, this sounds really lame, but give me a second. Okay, maybe this is just my 631 showing. Um, but I used to follow TSA on Instagram, which sounds just abysmal. But here's why. It's because they take pictures of all of the things that people, if you want to just be paranoid anytime you ever fly again, follow TSA. Because they show you all the things that people are trying to sneak onto planes that they catch in their process. And it's absolutely terrifying to see the length of what people in America are trying to sneak onto giant pressurized sausage tubes in the air. They are trying to take knives and even guns and they disguise them as ordinary things like toys and shoes and gifts. And many of us think that if we slap the label of humor on the weapon of hate, that it will go undetected in our world. But God is not so fooled. And we see the devastating nature of this heart further exposed as we look at the subtle deceit of the whisperer in Proverbs 26, verses 22 through 28. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body like glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven, so again, this totally abominable heart. There are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it and a stone will come back on him who starts rolling it. A lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. 
in our lives, we're often quick to distance ourselves from the quarreler because this is the dude who delights in being a bull in the china closet. We like to think that perhaps we've got a little more self-control than this dude. We're not as bombastic as this guy. But with the whisperer, or what other translations call the gossip, we often feel safer in our sin because it's not open. We're not saying these things openly. We're not grabbing the dog by the ears, but we're slowly whispering in the ears of others who are passing by. We aren't being inflammatory in public, but here we see the deceit of the heart of the gossip. See, multiple times in the New Testament, we read of the dangers of gossip in the church. And it's such a significant sin that Paul actually lists it as a sin which typifies a heart far from God. And I've read the New Testament, hopefully like you guys, and I see those things, and I see the other lists that are in those, the other sins that are in those lists, and I say, gossip, really? This is what we're focusing on here? I heard about the sin of gossip in the New Testament. But it wasn't until this week in Proverbs 26 where I felt the sin of gossip. Because don't we see the dangerous, menacing duplicity of the words spoken in secret? Where the quarreler says, I was only joking. The whisperer says, I never said that. Because even though in this text we see hatred, hostility, venom, and death, we see how disguised it is. The words of the whisperer are like delicious morsels that go down into the bellies of those who hear it. When we encounter a quarreler, we're irritated. When we encounter a whisper, we hardly know because we think we're getting some juicy tidbit. We think we're getting information that now makes us one of those who are in the know. They're presented to us as fancy glaze, which we think covers a priceless artifact, but inside the glaze is nothing more than dried mud. It comes to us, Solomon says, as hate in disguise. And the dangerous thing is look at where the whisperer is. He's already in the assembly. But he's hard to find because of his duplicitous ways. They speak how? Graciously, softly, winsomely, as if to, sh- to say, I'm sharing this just because I have a concern And have you heard about blank? Or they use it to butter you up and they say, I know you would never do this, but have you heard about this person? Behind their gracious words, behind their flattering lips is a heart filled to the brim of abomination, of violence and wickedness. And just as the quarreler is able to identify himself by his impulsivity, so to the whisperer, from their intentions. I think the church has a really complicated relationship with gossip and whispering because there are many things that should be shared that don't get shared. And there are many things that should not be shared, at least in that context, that go on getting shared. What's the difference? It's intention. And this is why we need God's wisdom. When we encounter something dangerous, scandalous, or attention-worthy in the lives of someone we love, 
we should feel the need to do something about it. We should want to go in either to that person or to someone else. Why? With the intention of caring for them, helping them, and serving them. This act of gossip, so to speak, this whispering can be judged by its cost. Is it costly to you? We looked a couple weeks back in Proverbs 24 at how costly it is, but how the church is called to rescue, to snatch those who are stumbling to death. When we encounter dangerous things in the lives of others, we ought to be those who don't just sit and say, they told it to me in secret, hopefully they don't die, when in fact they might be dying. But we do so with care, wisdom, and gentleness, not wanting to be the one who published the tabloid, but wanting to be the one who's willing to die with that individual for the sake of Jesus. And it's what's not costly that is the easiest to share. It's when we find something which may or, not, may, or not, may or may not be as serious, but we share it with the desire to spread rumors, which no one just wants to spread a rumor. We have an intent, don't we? We want to make ourselves feel better. We want to increase our social capital or sway somebody to our side. We want to besmirge somebody so that we could pocket that influence and seem to lord it over someone later on. But how vile is this heart inside of the church? Where the quarreler picks up arms and enjoys himself in the midst of battle, the whisperer delights sitting safely on the sidelines, watching the war that she has convinced others to fight for her. But instead of being a meddler who delights in destruction, look at what the heart of the wise is to model, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to all who hear. You see, this is how we're often informed by a cultural proverb, which is not God's proverb. This is where we listen to those proverbs that hang limp and useless. We're conditioned to the phrase, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say it at all. That is Half true. But the call to Scripture is not just to say nothing. It's to say something. It's to use your words to spread grace, to give positive gossip, to encourage, to admonish, to use our words as tools to help those around us love the Lord. Do you meet this standard? If not, you might be in trouble. Because what we see clearly in the last few verses of this proverb is that what you think you're getting away with in private will one day be exposed. One day you will stand to account. One day it will ruin you. Why? Because God knows your hearts. So what do we do with this? Well, we need to now see our hearts through God's eyes. To trust that God is going to judge you means that you should be willing to trust the rest of the things God says. And that is to look back at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, and encounter this good news. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. 
Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil, and it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Here for those who look in the mirror and find out the things that are nasty and gnarly. Here is the promise of change free of charge in Jesus Christ. Here's the one who sees our heart warts and all and promises to deal with it safely because Christ took the punishment for us. I love the story in John chapter four of the woman at the well. And in the story, Jesus encounters this woman who's already on the fringes of society in numerous ways. And more than that, as this woman comes presenting whatever she's presenting, Jesus sees behind the facade and knows her heart, and knows her sins. He asks her where her husband is, and Jesus knows that she doesn't have a husband. In fact, he says to her, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. Jesus exposes in her heart a past history of sexual brokenness and brings to the ground that she is probably in this moment living with someone, sleeping with someone who is not her husband. And the way he phrases it might be the husband of somebody else. And this woman hears what Jesus knows about her. And she immediately changes the discussion to worship. She says, I don't know where to worship. I, I don't, some people say we worship on the mountain. Some people say we worship in Jerusalem. Whatever it is, I'll do it. And what seems like a random subject change is actually a reveal of the hope she has in her heart, though hope misplaced. She knows her brokenness because she doesn't re- re- try to refute it to Jesus. She doesn't bring up excuses and try to justify it. Instead, she says, I know, but I don't know where to go. I don't know which mountain to run to. I don't know which temple to find, but that's where Jesus reveals himself as the primary source of worship. And he says to her that the time has come for those who worship God to worship him in spirit and in truth. And he says, and I am he. Jesus says the only safe place to encounter the wounds of your heart and the brokenness in the mirror is when you come to him. You see, we will always be faced in the mirror of our lives with two reactions. And that is first, that we drift into the realm of trying to clean ourselves up. We become busy with work that doesn't matter, with acts that we cannot do. We become like this woman, frantically hoping that we can find the right object of worship, the right partner to satisfy us, the right food to bring us gratification, the right job to fill our pockets, the right act of kindness to finally change our perception in this world. But you cannot work yourself away from the reflection that stands across from you. But Jesus can heal that. Jesus can become that for you so that when you look in the mirror, you see not your brokenness, but Christ's perfection applied to you through faith. And secondly, for those who don't work our way back, or those who try to run and hide, we know how unworthy our hearts are. We've seen the mirror Maybe we stare at it every day, multiple times, reminding ourselves that we might be the fool, the sluggard, and the meddler. (laughs) We might have a complete passing grade at this personality test of evil. And we say there is nothing 
and no one who can love me in a way that changes me. But to see rightly, to see through the eyes of the Lord is to see a Jesus who not only works to save us, but who is willing to do so. To do so while we were yet enemies. While our face was muddied and twisted and bruised, Jesus said, I came for you. That here is the king who promises to change us according to his grace, where we can safely see our wounds and be cleansed by the wounds of him who died for us. So as we look into the mirror of our hearts, we have the wonderful privilege as we go into communion this morning of looking into the mirror of Christ. That's where application starts. And that's where grace begins. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy to us. Lord, we pray that we are able to soberly look at our hearts and see what is there, but then to look to Christ and see what he has done to change us. To see that he is the one who makes our paths straight. He is the one who gives us new eyes to see what our experience reminds us of in our brokenness. Lord, help us to see the beauty of the one who died for us so that we can see our hearts and change by your grace, knowing that you will bring it to completion inside of us. I pray all this in your name. Amen.